So we're working through this uh, series, 1 Peter. We're looking at the implications of, for a group of people uh, who are by heritage, by birthright, they're born into that Jewish tradition and yet they're living very distant from the, uh, the actual traditions of Jerusalem. They're living in what is now modern-day Turkey. Various uh, towns are mentioned at the beginning of this letter Peter is writing to communities, small communities of believers who have come to faith in Jesus uh, right at the very beginning uh, of the first century. We're thankful that this is presented to us because it reminds us in one sense that the idea of a small gathering of people believing in the message of Jesus is not a new thing we are comparatively speaking, probably proportionally speaking, not that dissimilar to the congregations and the gatherings that were meeting at the time of Peter. It's right at the very beginning of the spread and, and if you like, success of the message of the Bible. Right at this point in time, probably some 30 years after Jesus uh, has died and, and risen and returned to heaven, Uh, the Christian faith was just beginning to gain traction, just beginning to see uh, fruit, people beginning to turn to faith in Jesus as it spread through the Roman Empire. So small groups of people were beginning to uh, claim that faith. So here we see a group of people uh, in a church, probably not dissimilar in maybe numbers similar to us this afternoon, Uh, who have been compelled by that message. And Peter is now writing to them and encouraging them and, and teaching them and helping them to grow. Now, the implications of this section, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 2, verse 4 through to 10. Uh, in a sense, that, this little section is absolutely rampacked with all sorts of amazing thoughts and teachings. Uh, we've got uh, a relatively short period of time this afternoon to go through it. So I think it's a bit like this. Back in, um, well, 61 years ago, Queen Elizabeth was uh, crowned Queen of England and the Commonwealth countries. So around just, just short of 18 months after the death of her father, so, 18 months later, she was, she was seen as queen immediately that her father died. She became queen, but the coronation is like the, the moment of declaration uh, and public presentation. So, I guess that for that 18 months, she was already beginning to come to terms with what it would be like, what it was like to be queen. There was a period of time where she was coming to terms with it. Then there's the coronation with all of that amazing spectacle, black and white uh, filming uh, still at that point in time. We see her crowned as queen. I reckon that if any of us sat down today with Queen Elizabeth, she would absolutely say at that moment, at today, that at that moment in time, 61 years ago, she didn't have a clue what it was like to really be queen. So it's taken all of this lifetime for her to really come to terms with what was declared back there. 
But the reality was the same, wasn't it? She was queen back there. But the implications of it, what all of those words that were declared on that day, the implications of them, what they have come to mean in her life is so much bigger now that she understands. In a sense, this little section can function just in that way. There will be those of us here who will look at this and we will say, well, yes, actually, um, I'm just observing this as an implication of perhaps what it might mean to be uh, a believer in Jesus. In a sense, we can say that we're, we're outside in the kind of gathering, watching the coronation. We're, we're thinking about that. For others of us, we might say, yes, I am definitely, clearly, and wholeheartedly one of those who that de- declaration is being made over. Uh, and I believe that I am, in a sense, crowned. <laughs> uh, and we would say then you're on a journey and the implications of this section is going to take years to work out. For others, we might be way down the line and we'll say, yeah, I listened to those words and they mean so much more now than when I first read them. They mean so much more. The implications of them are are so much greater. They are no less real, but they mean more because I've traveled down that pathway so much further, and I understand now what it meant way back then, (laughs) in a way that I thought I understood back then, but you know, I wasn't even close to beginning to understand. In a sense, the Bible functions so often like that, particularly when we get to massive passages like this, which are contained with a huge amount of significance. So let's have a look at what we can see, um, which in a sense, this gathering of people would have heard from this letter that which would have been passed around churches and read. The first thing that we see is that it, it absolutely drags up all sorts of Old Testament implications. There are masses of implications that are back in the Old Testament. None of us, I guess, um, uh, have that huge Jewish heritage. Not aware, if, if, if I'm missing somebody who actually has a Jewish heritage, grab me at the end. I'd love to chat to you uh, about that. But for most of us here, we don't have that Jewish heritage. Certainly, we don't have the kind of heritage that these uh, believers would have had back then. So this section is just kind of touching all sorts of touch points for them. So we need to get into that and understand that a a little bit. Uh, It's filled with Old Testament significance, but the first thing that we see is that we see the idea of living stones. That's the first thing that we see. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God. That's uh, the opening comment what are these little uh, these living stones they are precious to god and you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house so there we've got this idea of living stones now the, there are two living stones that are being talked about here 
That's the first thing that we see. There are two living stones. The first living stone that is being talked about is Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone. That's actually where we got the surname Livingstone. Living stone. It's kind of a recognition of this idea of living stone which is entrenched here. What do we see then? What is it saying about Jesus? Here we are. We've come to believe in this peasant preacher from 30 odd years ago. We've got a Jewish background. We're sat in modern day Turkey in one of these cities. We've come to believe, we've been compelled that this peasant preacher of 30 years ago is not simply a peasant preacher. What, do, what have we come to believe? Well, we've come to believe in a living stone. That's the first thing that we see. Jesus is living. <laughs> That's one of the comments that Peter is making. He's saying this stone, Jesus, is a living stone. There's a massive statement in there. It's contained in just two words, living stone. But in a sense, it is an absolute foundation of what the Christian faith is built on. It's saying that we believe, and Peter is saying to this congregation, and in a sense this message is being kind of catapulted 2,000 years forward, and it's saying to us today, we declare and we believe that that Jesus who walked this earth, who lived for 33 years, three years of those was a preacher, as a rabbi teacher, traveling around a small part uh, of the Roman Empire. We believe that he died, he rose again, and he is living. That living is present tense. He is living now. We don't believe simply that Jesus lived. We believe that he is living. He is the living stone. That's the first declaration that he's making. He's not dead. Goes on to say, that living stone was rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. He was rejected, but chosen. There's a, again, there is a massive statement that is being made there. And it has so many implications. The idea that Jesus came into a Jewish community and spoke to Jewish people predominantly. There were just a few occasions where he, we see him speaking outside of the Jewish gathering. Just a couple of occasions where we see him speaking outside of those who John says were his own. And John says the, his own did not receive him. He was rejected. Now that in heritage terms for a Jewish thinker was a massive barrier. The idea that a, a rabbi teacher should be rejected by the community of thinkers and believers would be one of the reasons why we should not trust them. <laughs> and yet what Peter is saying is, listen, don't forget, he might have been rejected in human terms, but he was not rejected by God. He was chosen by God. In other words, the word chosen there isn't a kind of, you know, 
we think of the idea of chosen, don't we, in which like there's a moment where we choose. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, you know, shall I have the, uh, the red or the blue? Hmm. The moment where we take the blue is the moment of choosing. Actually, what that word chosen it carries far more significance in terms of the idea of sort of um, recognized or appointed or um, identified for a role. So, so everybody in human terms might have rejected him, but God recognized him and valued him and chose him and appointed him for that role. I suppose what Peter is saying is, here's the choice. <laughs> Which one are we going to trust in? Which one are we going to rely on? Are we going to rely on the rejection of humanity and therefore not trust him, not believe in him? Or are we going to rely on the acceptance by God? That's the dilemma that really Peter presents to us. It has been the ongoing dilemma when we come to Jesus for everybody throughout all the history of the world. What do we do with Jesus? Do we reject him because humanity generally has rejected him? Peter says the alternative is we accept him, not because humanity has accepted him, although we are presented to him through humanity, but we accept him because God accepted him. God recognized him. Which one do we value the most? The recognition of God or the rejection of man? That's a key issue, isn't it? There's the, there's the presentation that is being made with regards to Jesus. I suppose 21st century, we're living in a generation which is increasingly struggling, arguably, funny thing going on, isn't there? We are increasingly becoming spiritual, but we are increasingly rejecting anything that looks to conform to anything of historical substance. Anything that looks structured, anything that looks part of uh, some sort of organized religion. Isn't it an interesting dilemma that we're facing? We're increasingly spiritual, but we're wanting to be spiritual on an internalized, personalized term. Don't connect me with anything. And so we see Jesus is being increasingly rejected, I would say, in Western thinking. And yet what we see is the presentation that Peter makes to us, do we reject him because everybody else is, or do we accept him because God accepted him? What's the proof of God's acceptance? He's a living stone. Because he's living, Peter says, God accepted him, recognized him, saw him for who he was, presented him to the world as his son. Now do you see the connection that is being made? You also, like living stones. <laughs> There's the next living stone, is us. Those who believe in Jesus. There's a really interesting and obvious connection there, isn't there? That if God accepted that living stone, 
does it mean that he'll accept these living stones? You see that connection that is being made? In in an amazing way, and this is one of the ideas that Peter repeats again and again through this letter, he says that we are in one sense, uh, we are considered uh, alongside God, in a sense. He he says in chapter 1, be holy because I am holy. There There is that oneness with God. There is that sense of us belonging and being valued and considered in the light of Jesus as one with him. Now he says it like this, here's this living stone that I've shown that I've accepted, now you're living stones as well. The obvious connection there is, well, those living stones are therefore accepted, aren't they? You're a living stone, and you as a living stone are being built into a spiritual house. We won't get that straight away because we don't have this Jewish heritage. It's around about AD 30, 35, something like that, where this is written. In AD 70, from a Jewish perspective, there was the most incredible crisis of faith. And uh, that crisis of faith was the destruction of the temple. AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. You still go to Jerusalem, you can see the Wailing Wall, you can see all of the the kind of remnants of that temple which was destroyed. That was a massive crisis of faith. But these believers, from a Jewish heritage, from a Jewish background, are already living disconnected from the temple. They're living hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. In fact, they are considered by the Jewish elite as being second-rate, disconnected Jews of no worth and of no value because they are not partaking in the temple cultic practice. Cultic in the sense of uh, the, the practice of religion. So so this practice of religion going on in the temple, which was still going on at the point where this was written, the temple hasn't yet been destroyed. These believers are distant from. And Peter says, no, it's changed. And it's changed because the temple is no longer a physical structure made out of stones. Now, that isn't a remarkable statement that he makes because the temple is still existing. If he had written this in AD 80, it might not quite have had quite the same significance because because believers would have said, well, actually, well, we understand that the temple's now been destroyed and therefore we'll, we'll create a new spiritual temple, which is the people. It's even more remarkable than that because he says it before the temple has been destroyed. In in other words, he's he's building on the physical event of the crucifixion of Jesus. At the crucifixion, certain incredibly important events took place. Jesus cries out, Tetelesti, his last word, it is finished. It's a triumphant cry. It's a cry of victory. 
It's, uh, it's actually been discovered in archaeological evidence at the end of a paid bill, uh, a long series of payments. Tatalasty, it is completed, it is finished. Jesus cries out Tatalasty. At that very moment in time, the massive curtain in the temple, which went from the top to the bottom, separating the most holy place from all of the priesthood, was ripped in two. It was an act of temple vandalism of incredible size. In other words, God vandalized that very place which was identifying as being His presence. God vandalized it, destroyed it, broke it. The most special, precious place God destroyed at the point where Jesus died. And Peter builds on it now and he says, look, you now are the temple. You're the temple. What kind of temple are we? So we're living stones. Let's go on now, he says. The kind of temple that you are is the kind of temple which is to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You plural. He's writing to the church. So here we are. This letter has arrived. We've gathered together whenever we've been able to gather together in a little town in Turkey. Asia Minor, if we want to give it its title from back there. Somebody who stands up and they say, you are priests. You are priests. That, quite honestly, would have seemed absolutely blasphemous. You are priests. The significance of that is enormous. We just brush that off as, oh, another statement in the Bible. We're priests. What Peter is actually doing is he is, in one sense, derailing the whole of the practice of faith before God. Thousands and thousands of years have been entrenched in the idea that for me to come to God, I need to go to the priest. I can't go to God myself. It's impossible for me to go to God. Why? Because God is incredibly holy, incredibly pure, incredibly righteous. It is impossible for me to approach God. I know my place. I know who I am. And I am so thankful that God has given me access to Him through the priest. And then Peter turns around and he says, You are priests. In the Old Testament, the priests go into, once a year, into the most holy place. High priest goes into the most holy place. His garments carried bells on the end of it, and tradition has it that he would tie a rope around his waist so that if he happened to die in the presence of God, he could be dragged out (laughs) because it is just too holy to go into the presence of God. And Peter says, do you know what? 
you can go there. You can go there. You don't need a priest anymore because you're the priests. Your great high priest, as it says in Hebrews, he's already gone through the curtain. He's already entered into that place. And he, in that sense, the high priest, made all of the other priests acceptable to God. That's how the temple system worked. There was a high priest who once a year went into the holy place and that holy uh, place brought a, a, a sanctified righteousness to that high priest who then dispensed that righteousness to all of the other priests so all of the other priests could function before God on behalf of everybody. So here I am. I'm just, I'm just a, 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 well, I'm just um, a, a, a vine grower just outside of Jerusalem. I can't come to God, but I know somebody who, it, who I know somebody who God will accept. And therefore, I'm going to take my sacrifice and I bring my sacrifice to that priest and that priest is going to make that sacrifice for me and therefore, that sacrifice that he makes is going to make me clean because I know that God accepts him because the high priest has already gone through the curtain and has been accepted and sanctified all of those other priests so that I can go to him. That means that I can be forgiven for my sins. And Peter says, forget it. That, that was a great structure. It was a great structure because it was preparing us for the fact that everybody becomes a priest. Why? Because our priest only has to go through the curtain once. Jesus, go, as high priest, goes through once and has sufficient glory and sanctifying majesty so that everybody who comes to him is considered a priest. Never do we ever have to go to God through somebody else. That is so significant and so encouraging that there is now no need for me to bring my guilt, my sin, to an intermediary. I have the confidence to be able to go to God and say, this is who I am. And he says, I accept you. That is great news. And we're to bring sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. You see the shift there? Our sacrifices are now spiritual. We read about Mary and Joseph who were poor, bringing a, a pauper's uh, tribute, sacrifice to the temple. It's ended. We don't, we don't shed any more blood in sacrifices because that's all been done with. Jesus is the final blood-shedding sacrifice. Our sacrifice is a different sacrifice. It's a spiritual sacrifice. What does that look like? Well, Paul puts it like this. What kind of sacrifice do we bring? I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What do we bring as a sacrifice? Us. Me. I I sacrifice me. What does that look like? It looks like this. What happens with a sacrifice? The sacrifice dies. Uh, And the person who doesn't die is accepted by God. Jesus, the sacrifice, dies. And Jesus is accepted by God. In that same structure, our living sacrifice becomes us dying and being accepted before God. So do we live our lives daily as if me is now sacrificed and my life is given in discipleship and trust and belief and hope in Jesus? That's what he's encouraging them to. In fact, it becomes the foundation for the rest of it. How can we be sure of this? How can we be sure that we are acceptable because of Jesus? Do you see the way it's structured? That sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus. In other words, my my life which I bring as a sacrifice to God In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that you could make and sacrifices that were just objectionable to God because they weren't good enough. If I brought my life as a sacrifice to God, my life's sacrifice would be objectionable to God because it's not good enough. But it's acceptable because of Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see the connection? Because Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to God, my sacrifice, poor, pathetic, weak, rubbish in its delivery, failing in its desires, objectionable in its behavior and attitudes and words and language at times, it's still acceptable through Jesus. How do I know that God this timeless, eternal God, this God of hundreds and hundreds of years back, this God of Jewish heritage, how do I know that Jesus is acceptable? Why, why do we claim that? Well, actually, what Peter does now, in a few verses, is he gives them a great deal of confidence. He says, firstly, he says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Great, that first song. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. That's also what it says in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, and the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Peter is saying, this Jesus is the one who Isaiah spoke about. He's the stone that Isaiah spoke about. You confident in that? Now, listen to this. 
Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he throws them back again. We don't get this because we're reading this from the perspective of 21st century readers reading these words on the page. If we were sat in this gathering as Jewish heritage, we'd we'd know all of these verses from the past. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter again is saying, you remember that every time you sing that Psalm 118, It's talking about Jesus. Written hundreds of years earlier, it's talking about Jesus. The idea that Jesus becomes this cornerstone, this living stone, is not a shock. It's the plan. It's the way it's always been purposed. That Jesus would become the stumbling stone. Jesus would become the cornerstone. Jesus would become the stone of offense. Jesus would become the rejected stone that becomes the cornerstone. The cornerstone that sits on the corner of a building, which the whole of the building relies on. That's who Jesus becomes. And the stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Isaiah 8 verse 14, He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. This Jesus has been talked about for hundreds and hundreds of years, is what Peter is saying. In one sense, this is great stuff, these few verses 6, 7, and 8, in, in another sense, we, we don't need to spend too much time on them because what they're doing is Peter's reinforcing this is who Jesus, this Jesus is who has been talked about right the way through. Have confidence in that. For us as disciples of Jesus today, it's great for us to be able to be confident in that Jesus because all the connections into the Old Testament. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's how people, Peter kind of rounds this little section off. He reminds them again, This is who you are. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That actually is why I decided to use the picture of the coronation right at the very beginning. You're crowned. You believe in Jesus. You are crowned. Sovereign prince, sovereign princess of the kingdom of heaven. It's going to take you your life to work out the implications of that. And then one day as eternity breaks in, we'll see what it means in all of its glory. But we are royal priests. We are holy, chosen, royal priests. There is a little section where uh, David is looking for all of um, the family of Saul. And Mephibosheth, who is uh, he's paralyzed in his legs. 
In that tradition at that day, he would have not been allowed to eat with the king. And there's this beautiful little section where it says that Mephibosheth sat alongside King David and ate with him. It is the most amazing, beautiful section, I think, in the whole of the story of David for me. It's that moment where David shows mercy and kindness and welcomes the one who in cultural terms would have been executed because he was part of the previous dynasty. He's brought to the table and accepted. That's what it means. But it's being brought to the table. Do you see what we are? We are a community. See how that's talking? We are brought into a gathering. There's no place, actually, for independent, disappearing off into the, onto the horizon, individuality, Christianity. It says here that we are a community belonging together. We represent now what will finally be seen in the countless number that will be the community of heaven. Once you were not a people and now you are. I guess for Jewish believers who were ostracized by the Jews and hated by the Hellenistic gathering around them, the sense of belonging that this brought was incredibly powerful. In first century through to third century Roman, Roman Empire lands, there was a huge suspicion of any kind of free association outside of that which was organized by the state. Belonging to something outside would have been questionable, challenging, problematic. I think we're increasingly in the 21st century moving more and more to the point where free association of a historical religious tradition, which is what we're part of, carries increased problem for our society. We can belong to all sorts of things as long as it's not belonging to a historical faith tradition. Because faith tradition is increasingly problematic. But the reality is that we are reminded again that we are God's people. That's who we are. We are God's people. Now, I guess in, in, implied in this is an invitation, isn't it? It's an invitation for all of us to say, belong to this community. Be accepted through Jesus by God. Be crowned as a royal priest. Be part of that historical tradition of being accepted by God. What a privilege is presented here. Stones, priests, and sacrifices. Let's spend our life working out the implications. 